I had gone out to get my lunch and I was walking back to work and a police car cut me off and they came out guns drawn screaming at me to get on the ground and I, which I did because I that's that's what we know to, to, to do and um, while one of them sat with his knee in my back holding me down to the ground the other one stood with his gun pointed at me as they searched me what I was told later is that basically there had been a robbery in that area 20 minutes before and the description that they had been given was black man you know wearing a black jacket and as I was the black man in a black jacket walking down the road at that time this was how they chose to to deal with that for more where that came from and to hear the complete extended cut of this interview and all our interviews with no ads every single week to get access to the full back catalogue of everything we've ever produced here at Irishman Abroad for the price of just a pint every month, go to patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad. That's the small talk. Now let's get down to business. Now, your programme. What's the big idea? Well, they've grown to know the Irish much better. We've now got to know how largely their mind works. I moved over here and immediately I had to up my game. I could not have done the job I, I did for quite a number of years in Ireland. I had to go and earn my living in England. I think a lot of it's in my hair. I think there's a lot of Ireland in here. I had an Irish upbringing. 20 years after an Irishman couldn't get a fucking job, we had the presidency. It was some heightened awareness of how hard my tribe had had it in London. No blacks, no Irish, no dogs. Never has a nation so small inspired so much in another. So you could say there's always been a little green behind the red, white, and blue. Our family is very Irish, you know. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special announcement to make at this stage. Would you welcome, please, the wonderful Charlie Threego! Today on Irishman Abroad, an adopted or honorary Irishman, the screenwriter Carl Austin. This is a crossover podcast for our Men Behaving Better series, which premieres its third season exclusively to our members on Patreon this month. Season one focused on the Me Too movement. Season two looked at relationships and parenting. And this season we focus on race. In a week that saw the conviction of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd, this conversation couldn't be more timely. Most of our understanding of what is happening in America in terms of race and many other things comes via TV and cinema. Well, Carl Austin has seen both sides of that coin as a young black man growing up in South Central LA, seeing his community depicted in a very specific way on screen, and as a successful screenwriter living and working in the UK in Ireland and seeing the impact that that has had on the public and public opinion. We have the chance to get into a wide range of stuff that I really feel needs to be talked about in terms of the underlying layers of this cultural and political crossroads the US finds itself at today. Carl was there after all. Carl was there when Rodney King took place, when the Rodney King beating in 1992, believe it or not felt like a brand new chapter to him, felt like a time when no one could deny any longer the existence of institutionalised racism and brutality, but instead something far worse happened after that, the normalisation of that behaviour. 
At times this is a hard one to listen to, but I feel like it is one we need to hear, especially this week. Our chosen charity partner, as always, is Jigsaw.ie. They're an incredible Irish youth mental health charity doing the most extraordinary work for young people in Ireland across all communities to help them through this pandemic and equip them with the mental health skills they'll need to survive in life. Maybe they can help a young person in your life or maybe who you have a couple of extra quid yourself, you can help them. Simply click jigsaw.ie and donate there or help me with my challenge to raise funds for them through my Irishman running abroad challenge. I'm tempting to run 2000 kilometers this year uh, with the help of Sonia Sullivan and our community on strava.com. You can do it. You can join me and we can raise some money for this brilliant Irish charity. This is obviously one of our four weekly episodes. You can get access to all of our episodes by simply buying me a pint. Head over to patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad buy me a pint price of a pint and you get access to all four weekly episodes and a full back catalogue that's hundreds of old episodes of this show dating back to 2013 with the best Irish people ever to have emigrated and a few other curveballs in there as well that's patreon.com forward slash Irishman Abroad how we keep the lights on here and how you can find your phone full of the good stuff four days out of every week Carl Austin, thank you so much for coming and doing this episode of Men Behaving Better on the Irishman Abroad Podcast Network. We had scheduled to do this a, a long time ago and it wasn't the, the right time uh, for many no. reasons. I thought today the best the best thing for us to talk about and the best way to funnel our conversation is through our shared love of film, uh, something that you have made your uh, profession from and that, you know, rendering stories on screen is what has brought you to Ireland and puts you in a unique position to talk about how the black experience in America is uh, is show- has been shown to us in the past and throughout your life. My understanding is, from my research, that you were introduced to film really early on in life, as young as five years old, watching The Exorcist in the theatre. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, thank you. I'm so, uh, I should be relieved my mother's not here to hear this. Uh, <laughs> she would strangle me. Uh, yeah, um, one of the first films I saw as a kid in the cinema in 1973 was The Exorcist. I mean, I had seen a few films before that. I mean, obviously, like, you know, the animated Disney things like Robin Hood and Snow White and stuff like that. But um, The Exorcist would have been the first live action movie I probably saw in a cinema. Mm. And... um, (laughs) But isn't isn't that interesting, Carl? Because in so many ways, what we're about to talk about you seeing that movie had an impact upon you that maybe you were not conscious of because I've heard you joke about it. If ever there was a movie that would get you to church, it's The Exorcist. But (laughs) it's a visceral experience. It brings it it brings you to a place of pure fear Uh, at the time. Like I wasn't around at the time, but I remember 
that being a movie that my parents told me people used to vomit leaving the cinema and it was it was that type of extreme sport cinema experience oh, oh very much I, I i remember i i still remember we were sitting in the balcony it was the uh, the orpheum the old orpheum theater in downtown la which um, is still there to this day, actually. They still use it for premieres, I think, and stuff like that. But they had a balcony. When it was one of the few cinemas in Los Angeles that still had a balcony. And watching this, I was looking down over that balcony and watching so many people fleeing from that room, <laughs> just like looking green and sick. To me, <laughs> I don't know whether this says about me as a child, but I found that to be almost like it was almost like going to the circus for me, <laughs> yeah. you know, I was just sure. like, because, because what was going on on the screen? Yes, it was weird and it was freaky and it was scary, but I just something about the feelings it was giving me, it was, I was, I was kind of high on it. Mm -hmm. Whereas I'm looking down the, on the floor beneath and people just seem freaked out and want to get out as fast as they can. I just wanted more of it, mm. to be honest with you. Well, it's power, right? It is. It, it, it's incredible that a piece of art could do that. Yeah. Uh, you know, alongside that, at the time you said you were seeing double bills of, you know, Kung Fu movies and Superfly and black exploitation stuff. When did you become aware of how these movies were contributing to how your community was being viewed and when did you stop seeing it as essentially you know the circus just entertainment hmm interesting okay i would say that took probably longer than it should have and there was a reason for that though because What's what's different about what was very much different about LA at that time back then is that the is that when you lived in the black community, it was a black community. There were very few Hispanic people. There were no white people. There was the, the only thing that you would see was is what's reflected back at you from the movie screen. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like there there was no one else having the conver to have that conversation with about what was being seen there. Mm -hmm. I think probably not until i was um maybe like 11 years old or so and i was taken out of the school in my neighborhood and sent and put on a school bus and sent to the schools across the hill in the white neighborhoods and then seeing how they viewed the characters in those films reflected back on me that's kind of the first inkling i had that maybe something wasn't cool about it yeah you yeah. know the idea because I mean, okay, so you say you like you mentioned superfly i mean i don't know maybe you know how many people actually remember superfly superfly was a movie about where the hero was a pimp and his whole his whole journey was towards becoming the baddest flyest you know most super pimp he could be mm. And it was just like that was the level of, 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 the, of you know, that, that was the level of character journey through the whole film. And, you know, when you're seven, eight years old, you're seeing this guy in fly clothes doing, you know, having shootouts with the police and, uh, you know, basically being a full blown criminal. And you're thinking, wow, that's so cool. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and but then to 
actually get older and realize that that's how you because of the color of your skin that's how you could be viewed mm. by someone not from the community watching that film yeah it was yeah it did it, it, so yeah i say it, it was around 11 years old when i first started to realize so, that maybe those black exploitation films were not were not an accurate representation of what it was like to grow up where i grew up and were forming other people's opinions opinions I, on imagine, me yeah right? is that, a, that experience so. you describe of being driven to the better schools as the you know it's the chris rock experience that's uh documented yeah. in everybody hates chris and he's spoken about this and how this affected him massively because he essentially had to learn he said to get on with white people and yeah. to figure out oh, oh this is this is how they view this it, was that the same for you because for the viewers that for the listeners that don't know you were growing up in south central itself yeah no i, I grew up in the heart of south central i grew up on um 92nd and figueroa which is about ooh, maybe like a 10 15 minutes walk from where from the epicenter of the la riots in 92. Hmm. And uh, yeah, very much when um, I actually was a huge fan of Everybody Hates Chris when it was going on because it, uh, it it was basically just like looking at home movies <laughs> from back in the day, um, just with a much better looking kid, um, but much less much less awkward. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I what happened there was I kind of developed this thing of you know there were two Carls, you know there was the Carl that was that went to uh, Portola Junior High School and had to very much learn how to present himself in a way that was more palatable to white people. And then there was the Carl who would go home and be out on the street hanging out with his friends in South Central. You know, I, I even had to, hmm, I, I, you, you, you even start, you notice it, not quite, you know, initially but over time it was you even start, i even started to speak differently from when i was at school as so opposed to when i was at home right so you had a different a different voice yeah a different voice different vernacular you know some things that i would that i would say at school i would never say in front of my friends hmm. on 92nd street i mean that that you know, has it, a that has an impact right that, oh yeah it's it, yeah it's, it kind of fractures you a little bit it's like there, there was this um yeah, I, I, this is almost like a dual personality thing, hmm. you know. It was, um, yeah, it was hard. It was actually really hard. It was like, and I, I, I when I, I talk to um, my wife about this sometimes, when I said it's like, well, I had to explain to her the fact that I didn't see an actual white person my own age until I was nearly a teenager. Wow. It was like the, on, the only white people I ever encountered in my life as a child were the few of my school teachers and the police. And that did not paint a really um, great picture <laughs> of what, <laughs> um, of what, uh, what white people were for me back then, the police, especially not so, not so much. Um, so I, if, the, my, my teachers were actually, but the teachers were okay, but the, yeah, the, yeah, the police, not so much. So, yeah, so I, um, I had to, yeah, I had to learn, I had to learn how to be 
depending on where I was at the time. Mm. That 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 time at that time, like we we know the depiction of South Central. For, I grew up with a, a weird fascination with it, and it was fed to <clears> me that way. It was fed to me in the depictions on screen that this this place was sexy and cool and that while it was dangerous it was it was a place that you know great athletes emerged from and <clears throat> great music uh, came from and <clears throat> that you know the the hard knock life of it was was so polished up when I was a, a teen coming through that I had even thought to myself at times, if I ever get to go to Los Angeles, I'd love to visit South Central. That that didn't exist. <laughs> that polished view didn't exist until essentially 1988, yeah. uh, there thereabouts. Yeah. What was the view of what did you see as the depiction of your place at that time on screen? Um, hmm. Okay. Uh, well, it, it, it depends on the film, to be honest with you. There were, um, and like I said, it wasn't also just South Central. I mean, they, there were, it was um, Brooklyn, like, like with, you know, in, in New York. And um, there were some depictions like for instance, there's the film Minister Society, mm. which which to my mind, still to this day, I actually I actually know the guy who produced that, um, Darren Scott. He's a friend, and I've always said to this day that, that that to me feels like the most real depiction of what it was like to be growing up where I grew up in the late '80s, early '90s. Mm. But even that film, to a point. It didn't try to. It tried very much. It tried, it tried very hard, and did, does a pretty good job of not glamorizing that life at the time. I.e., the protagonist in the end, well, he dies. I mean, sorry, spoiler alert to anyone mm. who hasn't seen the film. Apologies, but it's also a very slick-looking film. Yeah, you know, it's it's amazing. The, the cinematography is amazing. Uh, the the Hughes brothers, the guys who directed it, they you know they are amazing directors, and they give it this look and this sheen and this coolness in the uh, in the visual palette of it. And so it is. It's 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 accurate in its depiction of what it's like to live there, but it also, like you just said, it makes it almost makes it feel a little bit like someplace you'd want to visit. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as an amusement park. Yeah. Whereas if you were actually in there living there at the time, there was nothing amusing about it or cool about it. It's like, like my elementary school class. It was like when I graduated in sixth grade, there were 36 boys that graduated out of that class. And mm. to my knowledge, as of four years ago, besides myself, there's only four still living and um and two of them are in prison and that is and, and that apparently that's a pretty good average out of that time and that that place in that time wow carl the the question i wanted to ask then if i've opened up about you know how i understood from these films 
that the way they spoke about the unfairness, the injustice, the poor treatment, as you've alluded to by the police, uh, as being just a part of life. I mean, in so many of those movies, it, there's nearly a, a formula to uh, certain things that you're going to see in these inverted commas hood movies included somebody doing a monologue about how that's just the way it is. <clears throat> and to an extent, I, I kind of consumed that. And like boys like me consumed that <clears throat> going, yeah, well, that is just the way it is, rather than going, well, fuck that. Why, why is it? Why is it like that? And why does it continue to be like that? At what point did you reach your fuck that moment? And at what point were you first told, no, Carl? This is just how it is. Oh well, I mean, I'm I mean, I'm lucky. I grew up in a home with where uh, my, with a with a pretty solid family base. As I was, uh, me and my little sister, I was raised by my my uncle, my mom, and my grandma, and I, so I never heard the words "this is how it is" and just mm. just accept and deal with it. I was always told it doesn't have to be this way, and you can you can get out, you can, you can make it better. You can, you can live a good life. So I didn't know, I never really had that notion in my head. And, and anyone who ever said that to me, just kind of went in one ear and out the other. I never believed it for a second. Wow. Um, I think <clears throat> one of the, you know, I'm going to go back for a second because you were asking about um, those depictions of those films. I think one of the problems with the, with the depictions, especially when you say the hood films, was that in Hollywood at that time, it's like because of the success of films like New Jack City and Boys in the Hood, they just want to make money. Hollywood movies just want to make money, and as far as they could tell, these are the kinds of films. That it's why the black exploitation boom happened in the um, happened in the seventies. It's like they, it's like they took a product that they thought we black people wanted to see and they just kept churning it out over and over and over again. The problem is, is that no one was trying to make other films set in our community. Like, well, it's, it's okay, not no one. Spike Lee was very much hmm. doing that. Because you you look at Spike Lee's filmography, you got she's got to have it. School days, um, do the right thing, Mo Better Blues. It's like every one of those films is a completely different thing, yeah. you know. Whereas I say, but then again, you you have, but you have like other studios, and they're just churning out, you know, New Jack City after New Jack City after New Jack City. And tell me this, because that, like that, like to me, I could I was that target market to an extent because I, I couldn't get enough of those movies. Uh, I, I couldn't like I, I I saw it as problematic and punk, you know, I thought it was problematic. Yeah. People wanted didn't want me listening to those albums. Therefore, well, I was going to listen to those albums. Well, you know, that's exactly it, though. It's like, see, I think that it's like it may have started out being aimed at us but there was a wider audience there to be had and so it was starting and, it was, and so you were pushed that narrative of mm. you know 
that you know and, and don't get me wrong rap music uh, has a lot a lot in common with punk music i completely agree with that but it was the pushing of that so of the so-called lifestyle attached to it hmm. that was where for me the, it became problematic you know like the first nwa album straight well i guess technically it's their first album straight out of compton i think still think to this day is a brilliant piece of work you know mm-hmm. but the problem is is that it bred you know copycats that weren't and they and these copycats they weren't trying to do what nwa which were trying to do which is open a window into a world that anybody outside of the neighborhood didn't see it was mm-hmm. like this is what the police do to us this is how we're treated in the court system this is how we're you know th- this is how drugs are being pumped into our neighborhoods to kill us whereas later th- later albums by shall we say lesser talents just became about you know uh, i'm getting my I'm a cap mother, blah, 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 da, 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 kill this guy, kill that guy. It's, it's, and it was just kind of like, it just all kind of turned into white noise for me. Yeah, I mean, it, did, it, it, it certainly, <laughs> I sensed it. And I guess I, I wasn't, I didn't have my finger on the pulse at all. If you think about it, I'm a, an Irish lad growing up in the countryside in Kildare. Like, mm-hmm. When you think about how that reached me, Mm-hmm. Like that, the pervasiveness of and the success of gangster rap mm-hmm. and those movies, specifically Boys in the Hood, mm-hmm. that it could reach an Irish kid, mm-hmm. 11 years old, living in the back arse of nowhere. It's it, like it's astonishing. Mm-hmm. Did you have a consciousness at all? in the midst of all of that, knowing that you're in the center of all of this and this is surrounding you, the the real life version of this polished Hollywood product. Did you have a consciousness of exactly how far it was reaching and how I'm sure you don't know this, that at some point you'd wind up in Dublin (laughs) hearing guys quote lines from the movies back to you. Uh, No, I did not. Did not see that coming. No, no, no. I can can say with some certainty I did not see that coming. Uh, Did you have any idea of how this was global now? And global? No. I mean, I, I had an idea how far out it was reaching in the United States. At that time, it just at, well as a, for instance with say for New Jack City, I was um, managing a premiere cinema in um, in a place called Westwood in Los Angeles. Uh, it's, it's whenever you see a big movie premiere on the news or on Entertainment Tonight or anything, that's Westwood. And mm-hmm. um, we opened New Jack City there, and th- that's where the infamous New Jack City riot kicked off because apparent because basically because we didn't have enough seats for the people that showed up and wow. when you um uh, when you looked at that week that that weekend it was that this was a, something that played out at almost every single movie theater across the united states that weekend and so and that wasn't just black people showing up you know it's like going yes there were a, it was a huge african-american audience but I, probably a good 30 percent of the audience was was white yeah. and latino and it was and it was it just hit across the country just it, it took everyone by surprise 
So I, so yeah, I saw the reach it was having, but only in the United States. I, I, I freely admit that in my early twenties, I didn't have much of a global sense of the mm. world by that point. Not yet having never actually left, you know, um, having never actually left Los Angeles but up to that point. It was, I would say, I wasn't, probably wasn't aware of how far the, the culture and the music and those films had reached outside of the United States until the first time I left the United States, which would be when I went to uh, England in 2003. Massive thanks to Carl Austin for this episode. Extraordinary man, an extraordinary writer. Uh, a brilliant, brilliant conversation. Delighted that we had it. Please share it if you enjoyed it. Tell other people about it uh, or just post it where you can. Ping it on to somebody. I think we, we need to listen. We need to not rest on our laurels and think, oh, that's that sorted. As Carl said, that's pretty much what happened in 1992. And we can't allow it to happen again. The uh, Men Behaving Better series that this is a crossover podcast for is, of course, available on all platforms for free. And the full version, all three seasons, can be heard on patreon.com forward slash irishmanabroad. That's where you get all of our stuff. And as I said, you buy me a pint, you get access to the lot. It's that simple. Jesus, when you think about the coffees and pints that you've bought over the time, if you want more Irishman Abroad or you want Irishman Abroad to continue going, that's the way to do it. Just buy us a pint, then, then we're even. And you get access to four weekly episodes. Hard to believe it now. Four, four episodes. That's, that's our cultural picks episode, the selection box once a week. Marion McKeown in America on a Friday. Sonia Sullivan and I talking running and well-being on a Tuesday. And of course, this our feature interview every Sunday in full and all its glory access available to you for simply the price of a pint each month. Brian Connolly does a production on the show. Tina and Mikey make it all possible and John Marr does extra research. Thanks, lads, and I will talk to you on Tuesday.